Well, we're starting a series today called Best Christmas Ever, and the whole point of the series is exactly what it says. We want to make this the best Christmas ever. We don't want to have a hashtag Christmas fail. So what we're going to do every single week is we're going to talk about one thing. Now, Christmas is the kind of time that, that holds so much promise for, for very profound things to happen. But because of our busyness, because of our schedules, and oftentimes because of the way we approach it, we basically, the things that we're preparing for actually gets in the way of the experience that's promised during this amazing time. And so we're going to touch on one thing every single week, and to get us started today, I want to start by asking you a question. What does freedom mean to you? What does freedom mean to you? I'm not talking about like what, is, what does your freedom as an American mean? What, but when you're free, what does freedom look for you? A baby, for instance, a f- would be freedom would be to get out of the crib and be able to crawl around on the living room carpet, right? Uh, if you're a third grader, freedom is the last day of school and you know you have summer vacation coming up. Uh, a 16-year-old, for freedom for them, getting a driver's license. For the high school graduate, it's about leaving home and not having anybody tell them what to do anymore. I have friends who had a teenage son who was so sick of his parents telling him what to do that he went off and joined the Marines. So that was, <laughs> that was funny. But what does freedom mean for us in this area? I think freedom for us in this area, true freedom, would be freedom from discontentment. Discontentment waffles around in this area through subdivisions, and through jobs, and through homes, and it's infectious. So I'm going to ask you some questions, and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you answered yes to any one of these questions. Like in the last six months, have you complained about your physical appearance, or your education, or your athletic ability, your achievements or lack thereof, or complained about your finances, or about how busy you are, or have you complained about your spouse or lack thereof, or complained about your kids or lack thereof? Have you complained about your health, your age, your job, your boss, the weather, things that you wish you could do if you had more money? If you answered yes in your mind to any of this, raise your hand. Look around. You're a mess. Let's be honest. (laughs) What is contentment? I just, uh, I just wrote down just a quick definition I think would be helpful for us. Contentment is not being driven by wanting more. Not being driven, this constant need for more, whatever that more is. And so what is it that you keep driving to? I think one way this shows up in this area is moving. Um, Over the years, I've affectionately called this area the junior college. Someone will come in, they'll go into a house, and then after a couple years, they'll move to another house or they'll move to another area. That house is not good enough. This kitchen is not good enough. These rooms, this layout, this property, this design is not good enough. And so at the first opportunity, we move up and we keep doing that. But there are complications with that. Richard Swenson wrote a great book called The Overload Syndrome, Learning to Live Within Our Limits. He talks about four strains. First, there's a financial strain of moving a lot. People move because they think that they're going to make so much more money 
someplace else, but they don't factor in all the associated costs. There's a relational strain. As a, as a doctor, Dr. Swenson talks about the cocoon effect. That it takes, when you move to a new location, it takes three to four years to create new friendships of any kind of depth. And if you do that more than once, and it becomes a repetitive pattern, you cocoon. You never actually, as a family, reach out and establish real relationships. There's strain on children. Oftentimes the excuse is, we're going to go to a different place, I'm going to earn more money, the schools are going to be better, this is a good move for our kids, when in reality it's usually not good for the kids. And then there's a spiritual strain. The church is hurt because when a family is hurt, the kingdom is set back. When the cocoon effect begins to happen and relationships are hurt in families because of successive moving, the overall kingdom is hurt. I remember when my dad got a new job and uh, started making considerably more money than he was making before. He started hearing from his friends that he had to move to an area in Columbus called Upper Arlington. Um, Upper Arlington would be tantamount to uh, uh, any place along the main line here. And his friends just kept telling him, man, you have the money, you need, you need the bling and that sort of thing, you need to go up to Upper Arlington. And I remember driving through some of these neighborhoods and talking about that, and eventually my dad was like, this is ridiculous. We don't want to live here because of our, we don't want to leave our church, and we don't want to leave our friends, and we don't want to leave our schools. Who cares if we can afford it the best thing is for us to stay put right here. So Dr. Swenson gives this advice. He says, make a conscious decision to sink in roots. One house, one town, one church for a decade. Plant a one-foot-high apple tree in your yard and don't move until it yields a bushel. Better yet, plant an acorn and don't move until the grandchildren build a fort in its branches. Doing this encourages us to invest in relationships and learn to deal with issues over a longer period of time. Now, moving is only but one of many issues we struggle with when it comes to discontentment in this area. Our desire to find a new house. We need a new car. We need a new car. We need that new job. We need that new something just to scratch that itch. So, the Apostle Paul addresses this. How do you basically thwart and deal with and stop being driven so much by discontentment. The Apostle Paul shares it in Philippians 4. He says this. He says, I have learned the secret to being content whatever the circumstances. It doesn't matter where I find myself, I could be content. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be flush with cash. I have learned the secret of being content in any, in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so the Apostle Paul was bulletproof. If you are not susceptible to discontentment, imagine the liberation that would come, especially during this time of year. There's this one scripture verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that gets to the core issue of this problem, and it's this. The book of Ecclesiastes says, all human toil is for the mouth. And um, psychologists were great about, about helping us understand that the mouth is metaphorical for the basic instincts and drives that go on in our lives. 
that there is this basic human need initially just for food to eat, and then we want more to eat. But then it becomes metaphorical to, I got that thing, I need more of that. Did I just make that noise? Sorry about that. So what I want to do is I want to give three suggestions to help cultivate contentment and make this the best Christmas ever. And the first is this. I want to encourage you to create realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. Oftentimes, because our families of origin, how we wish things had been different, what we will do is we will come up with, now when we're doing it, it's going to be this way. Or there are these drives, these ideas that we have that we get stuck in our head about what the perfect Christmas is. And this is just basic human nature. When we got married, Lisa and I, 30 years ago, we had incredibly high expectations going into it. Lisa had this hidden expectation that when she got married, it would be to a man that would satisfy her every desire that this man would provide a kind of nonstop thrill ride of emotional intimacy, personal affirmation, and physical ecstasy. And to be honest, it worked out pretty well for her, honestly. (laughs) I'm quite a catch, right? I had my expectations too, but part of the problem in marriage is expectations that simply aren't realistic. They just simply cannot be met. There is no one person that could possibly meet whatever these particular needs are. So here's a formula that more than likely you've heard before, and it's this. Contentment equals reality minus expectations. That if you want to be content in life, you need to see your life as it actually is, and then from that point, reduce the expectations from that. One of the ways we ratchet ratchet this down for Christmas is, Instead of building up in our mind that we're going to do this and we're going to have this party and we're going to go, we're going to do all of these things and this, if this happens, this would be an amazing experience. Instead, maybe what you ought to do this year is say, I am looking forward to having one meaningful conversation, soul to soul, with every person in my family and every one of my close friends. So here's my question. If you had this Christmas one meaningful conversation soul to soul with the people that are in your family and your close friends, wouldn't you say that would be the best Christmas ever? Now, what gets in the way of that? The planning and the parties and the gifts and that sort of thing. King David said this. Here's a guy that could do anything. Talk about having the ability to fulfill unrealistic expectations. David wrote down, he said, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I ratchet down the expectations, and it creates contentment. I'm content with reality minus expectations. Here's a second suggestion I would like to encourage everyone to do. To create artificial constraints for gifts. That this year it might be too late because if you started your gift shopping on Black Friday and continued through Cyber Monday, but maybe you could, but you create artificial constraints for what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. For instance, 
When we were first married and we had our uh, first daughter, Lisa and I came up with the idea that we were going to limit our gifts to $25 each. Now, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you the real reason we did that in the first place. It was because after we bought the Christmas gifts for our oldest daughter, we were absolutely flat broke at the time. So it was a matter of, I don't know if it was like basically helping us live with the idea that there's no money left over for each other, but we basically at that point said, every Christmas what we're going to do is we're going to get each other one gift And we want it to be the most meaningful gift we can possibly give, and we can only spend $25. Now, we stumbled onto this by accident, but um, moral philosophers will talk all the time about happiness comes when we create restraints, and the restraints force us to be meaningful in the way we're going to give gifts and receive gifts. Let me give you an example, for instance. One trip that we took that was really meaningful for us is that we, we went to Paris. And I say, I fell in love with my wife all over again in front of the Eiffel Tower. Now, after that trip, the following Christmas, for Christmas that year, Lisa got, for under $25 for me, a crepe maker. Have you had crepes before? Because we walked all throughout Paris and we would go to these roadside crepe machines, and we would get crepes. And it was just so romantic. It was so meaningful. And I, I started man-crying when I, when I opened that. We've talked about this, man-crying. It's where you cry, but they don't know you're really crying, you know? And it's, so I'm turning away. And I'm, I started man-crying. It was just so meaningful that she remembered how important that was to me. And it only cost $25. Now, if you give yourself an unlimited amount of money, how much frustration do you go through, right? But when you, when, you, when you give yourself a limit, it forces you to clarify things. There was a trip that Lisa and I took that was very, very meaningful. And during that time, I took some very deliberate pictures of us at every single one of these locations. Came home, and for Christmas, I got an album. You know how we have 7 billion pictures on our phones? Um, I grew up in a period of time where you only got pictures that were printed. It was a crazy day when you could actually get your pictures on a CD. You're like, what are they going to come up with next? This is amazing. But you could have pictures printed, and you would go through the pictures, and you don't have that tactile experience anymore. You just have 7 billion pictures on your phone. So we did this trip. I intentionally took pictures, and I found this um, travel book It looked like an old travel book that you would pull out of a dusty old um, um, uh, box up in your grandmother's attic. And on the, I I put the, the, basically the narrative of the whole trip that we took, and on the front page, I had written a quote from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. And as Lisa opened this, opened up the front page and read this quote, she just teared up because it meant so much to us. I am so happy to be alive in this world, I would like to live forever. But I am content not to. Seeing what I have seen with you has filled me. Believing what I believe has filled me. When she started crying, I was like, I win, I win. (laughs) My gift wins this year. Now, there have been a couple times 
where in 30 years of marriage, we've gone beyond the limit. One such time is when she was out getting a watch fixed. Um, principal of the school needs the watch constantly. on, And so she, at this place where she was getting her watch fixed, she snapped a picture of a ring she found. We were approaching our 25th wedding anniversary, and she was talking about the need as a principal to have a simple band because with a diamond on it and you have little kids running around and all kinds of commotion, she just wanted a new band. So she was at this place, snapped a picture of this ring, and she said, it's beautiful. And I, being the hopeless romantic that I am, said, yeah, that's nice. And um, (laughs) that was it. Completely forgot about it. Came time in November when I began thinking about a gift, and I thought, that picture. So the first place I went to was the Coventry Mall. Figured it's just going to be a simple jewelry store at the Coventry Mall she was probably at. Went to, I took this picture literally to every, I was like, is this you guys? Is this you guys? Not one place in the Coventry Mall. Then I went over to the outlets. Went to every place that has jewelry. Nowhere. Went to the King of Prussia Mall. Is any of this you? I felt like a private detective for weeks. I, I, I made a list of every jewelry store in a 10-mile radius of this area and visited them one by one, couldn't find it anywhere. Until one day, I was walking through the trap center, dropping off a box at the UPS store. And I walked by a store that said jewelry repair, and I saw the border that was in the picture that Lisa had sent. And I'm like, true to my wife, not going into any extravagant uh, uh, lengths, I was like, this is it. So I went in and I asked the guy, I was like, is this you? And he said, it's me. I never met. Then he said, I remember your wife, which I thought was kind of creepy. And, um, <laughs> but I said, do you have this ring? He said, oh, yeah, I have that ring. I remember her putting it on. She said she loved it. And I said, I'll take that ring. And so for Christmas that year, I gave her that ring. And she cried, and I won again. (laughs) Now, why I think this is meaningful, first of all, because it wasn't something like we came up with. We stumbled upon this. But our kids have watched this every Christmas. They've never seen us really spend more than $25 every single Christmas on each other. But they just have seen these gifts given with intention. So, for instance, maybe this year, what you can do in your relationship or with your children is that you can say with your kids, this year, kids, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on really being intentional about the gift. So we're going, to give, we're going to ask Santa for one toy, one book, one article of clothing, one experience, which in teenage years would have been like a concert or something like that, and then one surprise, one big toy. But you can come up with these constraints with each other, and then what it does is it relieves a tremendous amount of stress because there isn't this unformed target that's out there, and you're actually causing everyone to think through, do I really want this? Is this meaningful? Will I actually use this? So the last thing is, as I want to encourage you to cultivate gratitude. Now, um, probably notice I am walking around in this thing. So I am um, in 2019, and then every single year I'm going to be taking over a group of leaders from CCV 
to backpack a trail that's called the Jesus Trail that goes from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, if you've been here for any length of time beginning in the summer, I view where Jesus was born, Nazareth, and then moving to Capernaum as like a metaphor for our lives. He's born in Nazareth, but everybody thinks he's crazy. And so he has to leave Nazareth, and he goes to this podunk town of Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee to find the mission for which he's willing to die. And I think for leaders particularly, you have to leave behind the voices that cause you to second-guess yourself. And you have to go and figure out what is it right now that God is calling me to do for which I'm willing to die. Not in the sense like, oh, I'm purposely pursuing martyrdom. But that if this is something that you believe in the depths of your soul that God is calling you to do. So anyway, so I'm, I'm leading this backpacking ex- ex- expedition that's going to go. It's going to be over a period of five days where you're going to go. And anyway, so I went to REI and King of Prussia, my favorite store. I said, I need the best boots possible, man, because I'm going to start backpacking a lot. And they gave me some Solomon boots, and these boots basically have dug into my foot. And I, didn't, I hiked 100 miles before I went to the orthopedic surgeon and said, I can't feel my foot when I'm hiking. And Lisa was like, didn't you sort of, couldn't you have known that like after the first time? And I said, no, maybe not. But I have a stress fracture. And if you know me, I'm usually not a person that walks slow. I am, I am, and I'm just not that person. And so, there's this verse in the Bible that says in Ephesians 5.20, give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it very easy to be thankful for everything, as long as under everything is all the good stuff. But like a, having a boot, for instance, and taking forever to get ready in the morning and walking around and that sort of thing, to be thankful for that has begun to help me see people who actually have no other choice but to walk slowly, people that have physical ailments and diseases. And so I have begun to be very thankful that I actually have health. And I wonder what it is for you that you right now could flip on its head something that you're not thankful for, and you could start saying, God, I just want to thank you right now for allowing this particular situation to happen at work, in our relationship, in my physical health, in our finances, in our community. John Ortberg says that one of the keys to this is to memorize four words. It could be worse. It could be worse. I remember when my dad went in to have um, his kidney removed because he had kidney cancer. Turns out they, they actually removed the tumor the size of a football. And I remember how angry I was at God that my father at this point in his life, after everything he has done for people, that God would allow him to get kidney cancer like this. So I stay at the hospital. I sleep on the couches in the waiting room. That night, there was a girl my age whose father had a heart attack, and he had been in a coma for 10 days. And in my anger with God, I remember sitting there in the waiting room, listening to the doctor come out and share with her that we've reached a point now where we're going to have to talk about our options. Now I realize it could be worse. 
So what is it right now where it could be worse? Here's a picture from one of our oldest missions we support here at CCV. It's located in the Mathari slum of Nairobi. Many of you have visited this. Many of you have children that you support every single month. Mathari is a one-by-one-mile slum with 800,000 people in it. 80% of the women that live in Mathari are involved in the sex trade, not because they're really entrepreneurial prostitutes, but because most of them wash laundry for a living, and then they'll be propositioned for a dollar Will you have sex, and being, being uh, able to get one dollar and buy food for your kid that hasn't eaten in two days, suddenly now you begin to realize how it's very easy to get involved in the sex trade. Each child in the, among all of the schools that we are a part of, at Christmas, they're given a new shirt, they're given new pants, they're given new shoes, and they wear these all year long. In the blue bowls, you will see rice, Milk, flour, cornmeal, and two big gifts. And what are the big gifts? Hand wipes. And then a two-liter bottle of American Coke, which I think is the greatest thing ever. This is the new section of the King of Prussia Mall. Our kids will grow up thinking that this is normal. And one of the reasons we do an annual Christmas offering is to remind ourselves and our kids that most people on the planet do not live like this. And as Jesus followers, what we need to do in the middle of all of this opulence is to force ourselves to begin to practice gratitude. So for some of you who are in poor health, maybe you can pray, God, thank you for the days that you have given me and for the mobility that I do have. Some of you that have imperfect jobs, maybe that you need to pray, God, thank you that I actually have work. Some of you here are married, and you just need to accept the fact that you're married to an imperfect person. Am I right? And there's someone in this auditorium that you're married to that you need to lean over to, and you need to say, I'm grateful I'm married to you, and here's why. Some of you here, you're not married, and there's someone in this auditorium you need to go over to after the service and say, honestly, I'm grateful I'm not married to you. It'd be a disaster, <laughs> right? Let's keep it real. Let's keep it real, right? Contented people have a large gratitude, large capacity for gratitude and wonder, and so contentment, if we boil it down as this, contentment is the byproduct of a certain kind of living, a certain kind of kingdom living that we learned from Jesus as his disciples, as we learn how to make life work. So during the season of Christmas this year, I want us to intentionally pursue and practice what a disciple of Jesus would do in the 21st century along the 422 corridor. Let's pray. We're thankful, God, for everything, good and bad, it's easy to say the words. Help us through your spirit to do the things that will help us to mean them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.